It's Friday, 17th of February, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing why the UK faces a record wave of business insolvencies and about the economic choices for Nigerians as they prepare to vote in the upcoming crunch presidential election. But first, the coming week marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was the singular moment of 2022, and it prompted a torrent of predictions about how the world would be radically changed by it, not least Europe. But how much has the war fundamentally shifted the European narrative? To look into this, I'm joined by Andrew Kenningham, our chief Eurozone economist, and Liam Peach, our senior economist focusing on Central and Eastern European economies. Now, there's still a lot of known unknowns around the war, not least how it's going to end. But we're going to hone in on the immediate economic implications of the last 12 months for these regions and explore some of the preconceptions going into the crisis to try to draw out ideas about what the future holds. Let's start with Russia. Liam, the West's response to last February's invasion was this aggressive raft of sanctions designed to isolate Russia and cut it off from from much of the global financial system. Those actions led to swift and sharp forecast downgrades, but the data coming out of Russia don't suggest these punitive actions have devastated its economy. Is that a fair take? Thanks, David. I I think that is a fair take. You know, Russia's economy was hit pretty hard in the second quarter of last year, but it stabilized very quickly. And then towards the end of 2022, it actually looked like it was going to recover. The GDP figures only tell part of the story. And then we think the fall in GDP last year was probably in the order of two and a half percent. It's much smaller than some of the forecasts at the start of the war of around 10%. I think some sectors in Russia were hit particularly hard. I think Two that we've looked at include manufacturing sectors most dependent on imports, you know, motor vehicles, for example, production slumped by about 60% last year. And consumer-facing sectors were hit quite hard as well by rising prices and households started to save more amid increasing uncertainty. But I think there has been a tendency to overgeneralize some of these developments. The economy as the whole actually held up quite well. There's another question that follows is is just why was Russia's economy so resilient last year? I think we need to remember that Russia spent the best part of a decade sanctions-proofing its economy. Balance sheets had improved, external debt of banks and corporates had fallen. The government came into this war with very low public debt. So sanctions didn't have much of an impact on on some parts of the economy. There was no immediate pressure on the government to issue debt. So the loss of access to international capital markets didn't have an immediate impact. I think there was a failing probably among analysts in the international community to think that the sanctions would cause immediate and short-term pain for the economy. I think that just hasn't happened. Instead, it's looking like sanctions are going to have more of a long-term impact. I think two other factors that probably were key as well. One was that Russia was better able to adapt than many people expected. You know, Import substitution policies by and large weren't that successful or at least taking time to come through. But Russia has been able to increase manufacturing of some products. And Russia has been able to completely reorientate its trade. So it's increased its trade with China and Turkey. It hasn't been able to replace the imports of, of, of Western technology, but it has been able to access some, some goods. And I think the key part really was the energy sector in Russia. You know, Russia's energy sector for most of last year was not impacted by sanctions at all and actually benefited from quite high commodity prices, particularly oil and gas. That caused a huge rise in 
Russia's current account surplus. And that was a key part, I think, in maintaining financial stability. So lots of talk about sanctions, but not as effective as, as they'd been designed to be. What can we say about 2023? Does, does that very much set the tone for, for this year as well? I think 2023 is going to be very challenging for Russia. And the key part of the story really is what happens to Russia's energy sector. At the end of last year, the EU imposed its oil embargo on Russian crude oil imports. And then additional sanctions came in on petroleum products in February. Russia's also dealing right now with much lower gas prices, the lowest since before the war. And the price of Ural's crude, Russia's main oil blend, is at a huge discount to Brent. So Russia's dealing with both lower commodity prices and lower export volumes this year. And that's starting to show up already in, in the budget and current account numbers. Russia's budget deficit is blowing out and the current account surplus is shrinking quite fast. I think there's probably a tendency to focus on on what this means for Russia's fiscal position. We're not too concerned about Russia's fiscal position because Russia's fiscal deficit can be financed domestically. I think the bigger concern for Russia is really what happens with the current account position. You know, Russia cannot generate the private capital inflows needed to sustain a current account deficit. And with large parts of central bank reserves frozen, there really is a limit on how much Russia's current account surplus can fall. We think balance of payment strains are likely to emerge in the second half of this year. That's probably going to require some sort of external adjustment and maybe maybe much more currency weakness as well. Andrew, I thought we could bring you in at this point because pre-war Eurozone was very much about coming out of uh, pandemic restrictions and the idea that supply chain disruptions seem to be easing. 12 months on, your team's forecasting recession as the ECB continues to tighten policy to rein in these extraordinarily high inflation rates. How much of what's happening in the Eurozone economy today can be traced back to the war and the Western response to it? Well, good question. I mean, I think the short answer is that part of it, but not all of it. So the Eurozone was experiencing the similar kinds of shocks to what we've seen in the US and the UK coming out of the pandemic, where there's a lot of inflationary pressure due to strong demand combined with weak um, global supply. But the gas price shock was an additional shock specific to Europe. And it certainly pushed inflation up higher just at a time when people were looking for inflation to begin to fall elsewhere in the world. And it squeezed households' real incomes very hard. I think it is the main reason why the economy essentially stagnated in the last quarter of 2022. And it's also a significant part of the reason for the ECB raising interest rates. And that's what we think is going to cause a lot of the weakness in the first half of this year. The increase in the gas prices was the main mechanism through which the Eurozone was affected. And I think very few of us anticipated anything like the scale of the increase that actually occurred. I mean, the price before the pandemic was averaging below 20 euros for a megawatt hour of, of Russian gas. And it reached a peak of over 300 in, in August last year. So that's up 15 fold. It's completely off the scale, a much bigger increase than the sorts of increases in oil prices we saw in the 70s. So at that point, it looked as if the Eurozone would be hit much worse by the gas shock than actually turned out to be the case. So in the event, gas prices obviously have fallen a lot over the last few months, which has helped. But also European governments have been much more willing to come to the aid of households in particular, and they've put caps on the, on the gas price or reimbursed households for the additional costs, which has cushioned the blow. To some extent, it's pushed it, I think, into 2023, but it certainly means the overall effect has been 
smaller than we had feared at that point. But the Eurozone still faces a difficult outlook, doesn't it? You're forecasting that rates will keep rising and that's going to have a negative impact on growth, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we already seeing the Eurozone essentially flat in Q4. There was a only growth because of Ireland's weird GDP figures. And I think we'll see a small contraction in GDP in the first half of this year, largely because of the impact of higher interest rates, which takes time to feed through, but also because of the sort of lagged effect of the higher energy prices, which have suppressed households' real incomes. So it's bad, not as bad as feared, but still um, not great. I could just add some thoughts, Andrew, on Central and Eastern Europe. You know, they were hit pretty hard by the spillovers from the war in Ukraine, you know, particularly through the gas channel, as you've mentioned. You know, a lot of these countries are heavily import dependent for their energy needs and almost entirely reliant on Russia for their gas. And we saw current account deficits blow out quite sharply last year. And a lot of currencies came under pressure, particularly the Hungarian forint. I think countries did a very good job at managing to replace Russian gas imports, you know, particularly some of the Central and Eastern European states, you know, Czech Republic, for example, has managed to lease a share of a floating LNG terminal in the Netherlands. That's helping it to replace Russian gas. You know, Poland, for example, has got a pipeline with Norway and has been able to access LNG from the north. And also let's not forget that you know, renewables have played a key part as well. You know, in Poland and Hungary, the share of electricity generated by wind and solar hit a record high last year. So all of this has been really positive. It's helped these countries get through this winter, but they're still dealing with really intense headwinds. You know, the inflation pressures that we're seeing in some of these countries are really strong. You know, in Hungary, for example, inflation is at around 25%. Hungary's economy is already in recession. Some of the other inflation numbers in the rest of the region are a bit lower at around 15%, but it's still weighing on disposable incomes. And we think that weakness in GDP is likely to persist this year. I think there is a there is a question about sort of the long-term outlook for CEE. You know, it's going to be a struggle to completely replace Russian energy, particularly Russian oil, because a lot of the refineries in some of these countries are dependent on Russia's oil blend. It's going to take a lot of investment. It's going to take years, some of these countries, to completely move away from Russian energy. And even then, there are question marks about just how self-sufficient some of these countries are going to be able to become. Obviously, Ukraine at the moment, it's a highly fluid situation, almost impossible to know where this is going to go. But what can we say about Ukraine's economy and about Ukraine's economic future? Well, I think Ukraine's economy has, by and large, weathered a lot of the pressures relatively well. You know, the central bank hiked interest rates very aggressively last year. It put in place a, a fixed exchange rate. You know, the economy did rebound after the initial hit in Q2, particularly in parts of Western Ukraine, I think the big question that everyone's talking about really is, is when will the reconstruction start? And for as long as we do have this conflict in parts of Ukraine and Russia, sporadic military attacks on Ukraine, reconstruction is only likely to be limited in certain parts of the country. It looks unlikely, maybe for another year, maybe a bit longer. It's, it's quite unclear at this stage exactly when Ukraine is going to start its reconstruction. The Ukrainian finance ministry last year put out some estimates on the potential cost of the reconstruction at around $500 billion, a lot of which was going to come from aid and private investment. I think reaching that target is going to be difficult. I think Ukraine needs to undergo a lot of structural reforms particularly improving the business environment, tackling some of the corruption, for example. 
And I think Ukraine will probably need to move closer towards the EU over the coming years if it wants to benefit from any reconstruction. Ukraine's economy previously was very agrarian. It was based a lot on commodities. It didn't have a particularly large manufacturing sector. I think there's an opportunity with any reconstruction and a private investment that comes into Ukraine that helps to build a manufacturing sector and helps Ukraine to integrate better with European countries. And Andrew, can I ask you about the longer term picture for for the Eurozone? As I said at the outset, there's been this sea of analysis about how the war has fundamentally changed the economic, the, the political, the security picture for Europe. This is a huge question. So maybe an easier way to ask is, if the war ended tomorrow, to what extent do you think Europe would go back to its old ways? In some respects, I think there's no turning back, particularly the energy dependency on Russia. And I think there's absolutely no appetite to restore those links on anything like the scale they were at before. And that does mean that Europe is likely to have higher energy prices over the long run than it previously had. In, in the past, Western Europe had somewhat cheaper energy than a lot of the rest of the world other than the United States, and that supported its more energy-intensive sectors. That's going to change, and I think we will see much more rapid progress on renewables. It's interesting what Liam was saying about Eastern Europe, seeing similar trends in Western Europe. So even things like heat pumps are being used far more in, in Germany. I think the sale of heat pumps is up by 50% last year, for example. So there's a whole lot of things of that kind where we, we won't see any turning back. On some other areas, there's a lot of soul searching going on about Europe's over-dependence on the US for security. That's obviously an area outside our expertise, really. But I think much there will depend on what happens in the United States and you know what happens politically, in particular whether the support for, for NATO and the transatlantic alliance remains as strong as it is under Biden's presidency, or whether we see a reversion to more sort of isolationist stance. And then there's a really interesting question of Europe's relationship with China, which is also under some pressure, because I think the Russia-Ukraine invasion has been seen as a wake-up call, and minds have been focused on the risk of similar tensions with, with China in the future, damaging European industry. But on that front, I think the the, the changes will be more gradual, um, simply because the, the connections are so deep and the dependency is so sort of strong in certain sectors of the European economy. And building alternatives to the China link are, are, are very, very expensive and will take time. But we, I think we will see changes on that front as well. Liam, what about the longer term picture for Russia? When the war started in February last year, we we published analysis talking about how Russia faces this future of, of isolation and autarky. What is the long term picture for Russia based on what we know today? Yeah, I, I think the long term picture for Russia is one where there's a lot more economic cooperation with China. You know, we've seen that over the past year. Russia-China trade has surged, particularly Russia's imports from China. A lot of that trade now is being conducted in rubles and renminbi. They have been able to de-dollarize, partly because Russia has been forced to do so. And Russia has been able to export more gas to China. I think there's, there's a limit on just how much Russia can depend on China economically, though, over the coming years. The actual infrastructure that's in place means that Russia won't be able to fully reorientate its gas exports away from Europe towards Asia. In fact, we're, we're looking at the a long-term loss of gas exports of around 30%. So that's you know, quite a big hit to Russia. And you know, Russia can depend on China for some, some certain imports and manufactured goods. 
that China won't replace what Russia previously imported from the West in terms of high-tech goods and machinery. So I think the war will overwhelmingly lead to a a lower long-term growth potential in Russia, perhaps of around 1% per year. That was Liam Peach and Andrew Kenningham on One Year of War. Now, our UK team is warning that the economy faces a recession that will bring with it a huge wave of business failures. Here's a discussion between the teams Olivia Cross and Ruth Gregory about just how big this wave will be and how it could shape the UK's economic future. It starts with Olivia explaining what's behind the team's estimate of just how many insolvencies are about to hit the UK economy. Overwhelmingly, the biggest determinant of insolvencies is GDP growth. So our forecast for GDP to contract by around 2%, peak to drop in the coming recession, that's a big driver of our forecast for insolvencies. And another quite big determinant is the change in the unemployment rate. That's just slightly smaller than GDP growth. So Our forecast for insolvencies is also partly driven by our expectation for the unemployment rate to rise from 3.7% in December 2022 to 5.5% towards the end of 2023. So based on this analysis, what do you make of the argument that the next 6 to 12 months may be one of the toughest for UK businesses for some time? I think support for that argument is quite compelling. We think insolvencies could rise from just under 6,000 in the fourth quarter of 2022 to a peak of around 8,400 per quarter by the second quarter of 2024. And so to get an idea of how severe the rise in insolvencies will be compared to, say, perhaps previous recessions, we've looked at the number of excess insolvencies. So even when the economy is healthy, some firms will still go bust. But what we can do is look at the number of insolvencies in excess of a normal rate for the time. So we think the total rise in insolvencies from, say, the end of 2021, which is when insolvencies first rose above the kind of normal level for the time, will amount to around 32,000 starting from um, the end of 2021. Now, that 32,000 figure is much larger than the 18,500 following the global financial crisis. And it's also larger than the just under 20. 5,000 following the 1990s recession. So, you know, on this metric of looking at, you know, the total number of insolvencies, I think we would say that firms are really facing a tough couple of years. Yeah. So, so, so what I'm hearing from you is that I guess when we, when we account for these particular stresses that are specific to this recession, then including the sharp rise in energy costs and strong wage growth and rising interest rates that there is worse yet to come and um, perhaps worse than after the global financial crisis um, and following the recession in the early 1990s. Yeah, definitely. And I think obviously one thing that's important to consider is that the number of firms in the economy has risen dramatically, you know, since the 1990s. But another way that we can kind of compare against history is looking at what insolvencies are as a share of the number of firms in the economy. So what we're expecting this time around is that insolvencies as a a share of kind of active firms in the economy will rise by around 0.4 percentage points. That rise is bigger than the 0.3 percentage point rise directly after the global financial crisis. So, you know, it's fair to say that the rise in insolvencies probably will be more severe than following the global financial crisis. But that said, that 0.4 percentage point rise is smaller than the huge 1.5 percentage point rise following the early 1990s recession. So it's important to consider how the number of firms in the economy has risen over time to kind of get a bit of context about how severe the next couple of years might be compared to previous recessions. 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that even on this metric of the of the share of, of, of total firms that it seems to be the case that the rise could be bigger than seen directly after the global financial crisis. Although, as you say, I think we can take a little bit of comfort that this is smaller than the huge rise that you mentioned during the early 1990s recession. So I want to just ask you a little bit about how long it could take for insolvencies to drop back from their peak. Could we Could we see a situation where insolvencies fall back quite quickly this year? Or or do you think that we need to look to 2024 and beyond before we can really look forward with some optimism? Well, what history would suggest is that it typically does take quite a while for insolvencies to come back to a more normal level. So our forecasts are for the recession to end in early 2024. And that's also when we think the peak in insolvencies could be. So based on how quickly insolvencies typically come down from both the end of the recession and the peak in insolvencies, it could be somewhere between early 2025 to early 2027 before insolvencies return to a more normal level. So I think we are looking at kind of an extended period of difficulties facing firms. That's really interesting. And I think this does raise concerns about what might happen after the coming recession. Of course, businesses always go bust at a higher rate than normal during and after a recession. And what's important here is how far insolvencies rise and how long they stay high for. If, for example, many businesses were to fail and and there's a great deal of redundant capital, that could prevent the economy from returning to its previous growth path. And so it does strike me that This is quite a drawn out period that you're describing that we need to get through. So I think it is going to be challenging for the UK economy. And we've become increasingly concerned that the fall in the supply of labour seen during the pandemic could lead to permanently lower economic activity if many of those people who left the labour force after the pandemic don't return. But I think there may be an underappreciated risk, too, that a big wave of insolvencies that takes quite a long time to come back down from their peak does add to the longer term scarring from a recession. And if we were to see a if we were to see this big jump in the number of businesses going insolvent, that would be perhaps an early sign that the recession could leave a permanent scar. So I think if we take all these things together, it does make quite grim reading, perhaps to mention a few risks to the view. And I think Perhaps it's fair to say that there are some upside risks given recent events, including the resilience of economic activity in the UK at the end of last year. So I suspect if we are wrong, it will be because the recession is shorter and smaller rather than bigger and longer. And there's also the global context and the global environment to consider in all of this. You know, it has been the case that there has been a stark improvement in the the global outlook in only a few short months. China's back. The Eurozone data has been looking much better. The US jobs market remains quite robust and the financial markets have been cheering all this. So I suspect the the risks are skewed to there being fewer insolvencies. Mm, I think that's certainly right. And of course, there's always the additional risk that creditors just behave differently this time. It, it might be possible that they just provide a little bit more forbearance this time around, especially given kind of the scale of headwinds facing what perhaps otherwise might be viable firms. Um, in which case it may be that some firms manage to muddle through this period. And again, there are slightly less insolvencies than we're currently expecting. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So maybe turning to what this all means for different types of businesses, the picture will differ by sector for sure. So I think I'd be I'd be interested in your thoughts on whether there are any pockets of resilience. Are we talking about 
and winners and losers here or, or is it simply that some sectors might do less badly than others? There will be some sectors that perhaps hold up a little bit better. Where we might expect that is in sectors that are typically less cyclical, where insolvencies typically don't rise quite as far in, ter- in times of economic weakness. So those sectors are you know, transport, financial services, agricultural sectors, all historically, the rise in insolvencies has been a little bit smaller in response to recessions. But I think what's really important to remember here is that firms aren't just facing headwinds from a weaker economy. They're facing headwinds from higher energy costs, strong wage growth, rising interest rates. So all of these are factors that might hit some of those typically less cyclical sectors a little bit harder this time around. That was Olivia Cross and Ruth Gregory from our UK team on looming business failures. And finally, Nigerians go to the polls this weekend to vote in a crunch presidential election. After years of mismanagement under outgoing President Buhari, voters face a choice of candidate which may put Africa's biggest economy on a market-oriented reform path or leave it facing several years of more of the same. EM economist Jason Tuvi and Vidag Fordi sat down to talk through what's at stake and what each candidate's offering Nigeria's future. The conversation starts with Vidag discussing what went wrong under eight years of President Buhari. I would say that unorthodox policymaking was the name of the game. His signature policies included protectionism, a loose fiscal stance, and a relatively strong and stable Naira, despite oil price shocks. A combination of these policies have contributed to slow growth in Nigeria and high inflation. Growth throughout the Buhari administration averaged just 1.3% compared to 6.5% in the preceding eight years. And when it comes to inflation, it only dipped a little bit in December from a 17-year high. So the data are quite telling on that front. President Buhari was obviously dealt a bit of a difficult hand with the plunging oil prices coming around the same time. He, as he assumed the presidency. But I've always felt that policymakers in Nigeria have struggled to grasp the gravity of the challenge quite often, whether that be low oil prices, insecurity in the country, or obviously most recently the the pandemic. I mean, in many cases, they've arguably made the situation worse. One of the really interesting things with this election is this isn't the usual standoff between the two main parties, the the ruling All Progressives Congress and the People's Democratic Party. Both of those parties are, of course, fielding candidates. We have Bola Tanubu, former governor of Nigeria's commercial hub Lagos, running for the APC, the party which he helped establish alongside President Buhari. And then there's the former vice president, Atiku Abubakar, who is running for the PDP. His secret attempt to try and secure the presidency. Um, Both men, I guess, are very well established in Nigeria's political scene. But I think they've really been overshadowed by the emergence of Peter Obi of the the Labour Party. Now, I think it's safe to say, Virag, that Mr Obi isn't a complete political unknown. He has previously served as governor of his home state and Amber uh, in the Christian-dominated southeast of the country. That said, it's clearly been a surprise the degree to which he's challenging the stranglehold of, of the two main parties. In fact, over the past few weeks, we've obviously seen some of the latest polls put him in the lead in the presidential race as he has managed to attract a following from Nigeria's youth. And whether he wins or not in the first round or overall, there certainly seems to be a good chance that he would at least force a runoff 
in, in this election. Now, Vivek, I know you spent a lot of time digging through the manifestos of the three main, main candidates. What were your takeaways when it comes to their economic policies? So when assessing the main candidates' economic policies, I think it's useful to think of a spectrum with a more pro-market end and a less business-friendly end. I would put Mr. Atanubu closer to the less business-friendly end of this continuum. Essentially, his his manifesto and, and economic policies would largely maintain Mr. Buhari's unorthodox framework. On the other end of this spectrum, we would put Mr. Obi with the most pro-business, market-friendly policies, for instance. This includes the the currency and reforms promised to liberalize the the multiple foreign exchange regime, for example. But some of Mr. Obi's policy proposals, for example, his fiscal stance, might limit growth, for instance. And when we're thinking about the third candidate, Mr. Abu Bakr, we would put him kind of in the middle of these two candidates, yet still on the the business-friendly side, if that makes sense. I mean, it feels, regardless of who emerges victorious, there will be somewhat of a shift away from the purely unorthodox policies it feels under President Buhari, but not necessarily a a clean break from from those policies. I mean, to some extent, all of the menace and tristos, for whatever reason, provide a degree of caution. I guess if we were thinking about the three main economic challenges any new government will face over the next four years, I guess we'd argue boosting oil production, overhauling the exchange rate regime and making sure we've got a more fairly valued Naira. And then I guess also tackling the public finances. All three of those seem fairly key to, to helping to overhaul Nigeria's economy. I mean, in particular, I'd like to discuss that final point in a bit more detail. We've obviously seen a number of African economies struggle with debt problems since the onset of the pandemic. We had Zambia back in 2020 default and more recently Ghana as well. Others are looking to restructure their debts. And then we have the likes of South Africa and Kenya resorting to fiscal austerity. Can you talk us through where Nigeria's public finances stand relative to those other countries and where where do the risks really lie here? I think that that's a good question. From the outset, it's, it's probably worth mentioning that we do not think that Nigeria's at a risk of an acute debt crisis, risk of imminent default. After all, Nigeria's public debt burden as a share of GDP is not humongous, less than 40%. Nigeria's foreign currency denominated debt is quite low, less than 10% of GDP equivalent. And the country's foreign debt repayment schedule is not overly onerous, set against relatively ample foreign exchange reserves. This, this points to lower default risks on the external side. The flip side, low foreign currency denominated debt, however, is that most of Nigeria's public debt is to domestic creditors. So any default on these domestic debts would inflict quite a lot of harm on the economy. So we think that overall, the imminent default risks are quite low in, in Nigeria. There are, however, two key fiscal issues. The first one is that while debt is relatively moderate, the direction of travel and the debt ratio is quite troublesome. The debt ratio has been on an upwards path recently. And the second key issue is that 
Nigeria's debt servicing capacity is, is quite weak. Interest payments are alarmingly high when compared to government revenues. So the next administration, whoever might end up winning the, the presidency, they will have these two key fiscal tasks. The first one to stop the debt trajectory from worsening much further and ideally put public debt on an even keel. And the second one to improve debt servicing capacity. As to which candidates stand the best chance of, of carrying out these relatively big fiscal tasks, we would say that Tenubu's policy proposals are the least la- likely to be able to do so. This is mostly because the ruling party's candidate seems to embrace a loose fiscal stance and and this would probably do little to arrest the worsening of Nigeria's debt trajectory. By contrast, opposition candidates' fiscal discipline promises would be much more helpful to to put the, the public debt on an even keel. And also, both Mr. Obi and Mr. Abubakar have set out measures that would mobilize government revenues, for example, and thereby that improves Nigeria's debt servicing capacity. But I think the key thing to mention with opposition candidates is that some of their other proposals, for example, on, on, on the currency, any devaluation push up the debt ratio in the near term as the local currency value of FX debt goes up. So the upshot is that um, in the near term, Nigeria's debt ratio is set to worsen no matter who who wins the the presidential race. But depending on the eventual winner, we could see potential improvement in in Nigeria's fiscal outlook under an opposition candidate securing the presidency. Yeah, it really feels like the public finances are sort of one element of what is ultimately needed in Nigeria to to restore macroeconomic stability. I guess one key issue here is that restoring macroeconomic stability is the foundation stone upon which Nigeria can then consider addressing its longer-term problems. And I mean, if we're thinking about Nigeria's long-term prospects, there's clearly some good things on paper. It's already Africa's largest economy. It is, as hopefully this election will show, it is a functioning democracy. Um, The country's demographics are really favourable as well. I mean, if you look at the latest UN projections, for instance, they show that the working age population will grow by about 25 to 3% per year over the next few decades. And that's far faster than in other parts of the emerging world. Set against all that, though, is Nigeria does face an enormous challenge to address other impediments to its growth potential. And there's a whole laundry list here, but I mean, we could consider educational outcomes among the worst in the emerging world, for instance. I mean, the most striking stat, I think, is the poor quality of healthcare provision means that life expectancy is around just over 50 years, very, very low. And then there's things like the poor quality of infrastructure, the business environment, low savings rates, all of which combine to hinder the investment that is ultimately needed to, to drive Nigeria's economy to faster and more sustained growth. It's worth mentioning that down the line, climate change and peak oil demand will be other key challenges for, for Nigeria to tackle in the long term. So the short point in all of this is that not only the next, but also subsequent presidents in Nigeria will face a mountain of challenges 
the country is to unlock its demographic dividend and become an EM economic superstar. And that's it for this episode. All the analysis reference can be found on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for full access, powerful charting tools, and much, much more, check out CE Advanced. That's our new digital platform. But until next week, goodbye.